Anna Barrera has been at the forefront of tourism development conversations with tribal communities in the United States. She says there's an interest in sharing the cultural heritage experiences that they have worked hard to preserve. There are many tribes that have great examples of retaining their traditions in spite of our government's best efforts to eradicate them. When author Bajan Bain traveled to Istanbul, he was greeted by a city of contradictions that was filled with multiple cultural layers as intrinsic as the baklava it's famous for. So the layers of the culture that are all there uh, at the same time kind of hit me like uh, the you know, the layers of the baklava. Join us as we discuss indigenous tourism and explore Istanbul on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. There are 573 federally recognized American Indian tribes in the United States and 326 reservations. Some reservations are open to visitors and most are known for their casinos. However, indigenous tourism consultant Anna Barrera tells us that many tribes are looking to move beyond the gaming industry by offering cultural experiences to visitors. We can't talk about indigenous tourism without first discussing the history between federal efforts to push cultural assimilation and Native Americans' efforts to preserve their cultural heritage. Yes, thanks, Tanya. So this is a very important point. When we look at tourism development efforts with tribal communities today, we really have to take into account several hundred years of history between our federal government and the sovereign tribes within our country's borders. Um, For hundreds of years, there's been a federal push to eradicate Native cultures and identities through things like military might, uh, official policy, and forced assimilation uh, through projects like the uh, Indian boarding schools. So starting um, in our country's early formation, there was a westward push that removed forcibly uh, the tribes living in the east uh, to reservations uh, in the west. And so you look at breakages between tribes and their ancestral lands, which create a very unique relationship to um, many of the tribes and the homes that they live in today. You see the allotment and assimilation era, which uh, created uh, private land ownership where land was previously shared among tribal communities. This led to a mass, um, essentially, excommunication of tribes from two-thirds of the lands that they had acquired through treaties. So um, you have such a a really difficult history and historical trauma that is very close to the surface uh, in tribal communities today. And um, as you would suspect, lead to a lot of suspicions in opening up their communities uh, for outside visitors. Sure. So how many federally recognized tribes are we talking about in the U.S.? Uh, I think many people might be surprised that there's 573 federally recognized tribes in the United States um, and 326 reservations. So not all American Indians live on reservations, but there's four and a half million Native Americans living in our country today and about a quarter do live on tribal lands. So um, there may be tribes in, in essentially your backyard that you may not know a whole lot about. I think um, when I speak to new audiences about tribal communities and tourism, um, many don't realize that their own states uh, 
has tribes residing there. Anna told us about a website that maps out where tribal communities are around the country. There's a website called NativeAmerica.Travel that has all federally recognized tribes mapped out on an interactive map in many um, attractions that uh, the tribes themselves have made available and open to the public for visitor engagement. So that's a really useful tool um, created uh, by an organization called IANTA, supported by the Bureau of Indian Affairs in creating. So even though there's a little bit of suspicion with um, Americans, um, outsiders, they're uh, tribal communities are still welcoming visitors onto their lands. Many are and many are not. You know, this is an ongoing conversation and that conversation looks very different depending on uh, the tribe. So there's some tribes that are very interested in diversifying their economy, maybe beyond the typical gaming venture or a cultural center that many uh, associate uh, with tourism and tribal communities um, to encourage more cultural experiences within their borders. Mm-hmm. Other tribes may not be open to visitors uh, because they're sovereign countries. They can determine uh, for themselves whether or not, um, you know, they are um, are allowing or open for visitation. So there's some tribes that require visitors to register with a certain uh, um, government entity uh, within their uh, tribal government to come onto their lands and to visit, while others have a very open door policy to visitors who are interested in coming. The site NativeAmerica.travel does um, specify which tribes are open for travel. Those tribes that have self-selected as being open for visitation have claimed their visitor page, essentially. So they've built out um, their own web page within that website that gives more information to travelers about uh, coming there. So it may offer tips and visitor etiquette around photography uh, and um, being careful around their cultural sites, um, or it may give you tips for visiting certain cultural events like powwows. We were curious about the tribes that were being very proactive about preserving their cultural heritage. There are many tribes that have great examples of retaining their traditions in spite of our government's best efforts to eradicate them. So I think you have examples from Alaska, from Huna to Native Hawaiians, um, to our Eastern Band of Cherokee, who have, uh, you know, share many of their traditions, including their creation story and a theatrical performance with visitors. So I think every tribal community has that great example of cultural retention uh, in spite of the great obstacles put uh, before them. But I think when we look at kind of best practices related to tourism development, there's really innovative work being done by some tribes right now to get in front of uh, what they perceive as threats to their culture before they open their doors to visitors. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of the tribes that I'm working with in upstate New York, Aquasafne, actually has a territory that falls on the Canadian side of the border and the U.S. side of the border. And what they've done uh, before opening the doors to visitors coming into their community have taken a proactive approach to uh, planning, essentially, for tourism development 
and they're looking to institute cultural codes to protect what uh, they don't want to be sharing with visitors and specifying very clearly for the community what is or should be accessible to visitors. So that goes... Um, that can be applied to things like oral tradition, uh, which stories are told, which stories should be protected in the community, um, what types of plants are off limits versus what types of plants can be explained on something like a medicine walk. So I think there's really interesting examples of tribes taking uh, this leadership stance in tourism development and really deciding for themselves um, what should be out there and what should be, you know, for themselves as far as cultural access is concerned. And I think that's a really admirable effort before um, you open the doors and say, come on in. We asked Anna about the impact gaming has had on tribal communities. Gaming has had, um, you know, a disparate impact on different tribes. There's some tribes that have uh, garnered a lot of wealth from uh, from their tribal gaming efforts and others who have felt a little left behind. Um, you know, so I think there's this look and, okay, how do we diversify our visitor economy by um, it, while also helping to preserve our culture for the next generation? And I think cultural tourism is being increasingly looked at as a way to educate uh, visitors who are coming into the community and um, a way to connect elders with youth in the community and help kind of pass on that culture to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, powwows, and um, I think in an- another conversation, the Midwest uh, Feast Fest. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you about, you know, other events uh, where those in the diaspora actually return to reconnect with their their cultural heritages, um, if there's any such event and if those are open to the public? That's a great question. So every community has events throughout the year that welcome the diaspora, and that's a perfect term for it, the diaspora home um, to their tribal lands. Um, That looks very different depending on which region of the country you're looking at. It may be potlatches in Alaska, powwows in the Great Plains, um, or other kind of community days and festivals uh, throughout the country. Whether those are open to the public or not is really dependent on the event itself. For example, there's some powwows that are traditional powwows, and so uh, you don't have the big purses that may be available or competitions that may be available in a more public powwow. And it may not be appropriate for visitors to attend an event like that. Um, So it's important to research the event online to see if it is open to visitors, generally if it's being advertised. Uh, on the uh, tribe's website, their administrative website. It is open to the visitors, but, you know, there's no harm in reaching out to the organizer of the event to ask. Um, And it's often, I think, the case that people uh, will take the opportunity, if it is an open event, to connect you with somebody in the community that can help interpret and walk you through the event and welcome you in. So I think it's always good to err on the side of caution when you're thinking about attending a tribal event and to reach out to somebody there um, who might be able to give you a more insider perspective and look um, at what that event is all about. Anna offered some insights into the shared experiences between Native Americans and First Nations people of Canada. We also asked her about similar issues facing Indigenous populations 
throughout the world. In the wider perspective, they're all relatives. You know, the same groups that were migrating um, throughout the northern parts of our country are related to the groups in Canada. And our federal policies were very similar for a very long time. So when you talk about the, the Indian boarding school experience, it's very similar on both sides of the border. And I think if you zoom out uh, on a global level, some of the, some of the same challenges um, that are faced by our American Indians are faced by indigenous populations the world over. Mm-hmm. Um, disenfranchisement, um, climate change issues, um, issues around economic development. You know, there's really been a cultural suppression, um, you know, with the ultimate goal of assimilation by a lot of the governments where that are, you know, in charge of um, of the space where indigenous uh, peoples used to flourish. So I think there's this gradual rebuilding of cultural identity and a flexing of uh, self-determination by a lot of these groups. And so it really is heartening to me uh, today that a lot of the indigenous peoples throughout the world are uniting in a shared voice to try to get uh, their issues heard and try to advocate for themselves and increase the amount of rights that they have. And I think um, I, I think that's really taking hold now more than ever before. How can we as responsible tourists support and protect the efforts to preserve our indigenous cultural heritage? That's a great question. I encourage everyone listening to engage with the tribes uh, in your area. You know, if they're not offering visitor experiences, uh, you know, respect that wish, but also educate yourself on what that tribal history is, because everyone who's educated becomes an advocate. And at the end of the day, that's really what my tourism development efforts are all about. It's about advocating for tribes to govern themselves on their own terms. And so each tribe does have a story to tell, and it's up to them whether they want to open the doors to visitors and share it uh, and how they go about embarking on the journey if they do. And so I'm going to ask you to leave us with one of your stories. Is there a story about a transformative experience you've had uh, either uh, traveling to the uh, tribal communities that you've been working with or just your own travels? Is there something that you have experienced while on travel that has just really impacted you? I think the one that really comes to mind is from a project in North Dakota, Um, working with the five federally recognized tribes there. We were taking um, a road trip to each of those communities um, to look at some of the cultural sites and historical sites um, that may be relevant for um, tourism experience development later on. And one of those sites happened to be um, an Indian boarding school, Fort Totten in North Dakota. And while visiting that site, um, the uh, my tribal companions um, picked up a brochure that was being advertised at that site, which is a state-run site, not a tribal-owned site today. 
And in that brochure, it, uh, it was presented um, from the perspective of a fictional uh, American Indian little girl who talked about her great experience at uh, an Indian boarding school. And uh, my colleagues were very upfront that that was indeed a traumatic experience for most of the children uh, that attended those boarding schools. You know, they had their hair cut in the Western style. They were forbidden from speaking their native languages. And so to see their story told by a third party in an inaccurate way really hit home the importance of our work. You can learn more about the sustainable tourism and hospitality work that Anna does through her company's link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. We also have a link to the Native American Travel website. listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world one story at a time. We invite you to travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift. The Turkish city of Istanbul reflects the cultural influences of the empires that once ruled it. The city is strategically located on the Bosphorus Peninsula between the Mediterranean and Black Sea, and it is divided into a European and an Asian side. Author Bijan Bain tells us that there are so many cultural layers to Istanbul that it resembles baklava, an intrinsically crafted dessert the city is famous for. Bijan, what were your initial perceptions about Istanbul before you traveled there, and what, if anything, changed? Uh, very good question. Uh, I'm not sure if I had any hard, fast, or preconceived conceptions prior to going, because I haven't talked to many people that have been, and I don't have much of a media sense uh, or news sense uh, of what the city was going to be about, although I've heard a lot about the country um, the last few years because of politics. So going in, I really didn't have a, a picture in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but were you that, were you a little bit nervous? Because some Americans are very nervous about traveling to that part of the world. I wasn't personally because I've never heard anything apprehensive or negative or a watch list, but that's just me personally. I had heard things about um, national politics, but because other because there are other countries that have national political issues that don't affect tourism, I never really had that in my mind when I went because I was only going to the capital. Just to answer the second part of the question, and things I came away with that I didn't necessarily um, have at top of mind going in was I didn't realize there were 16 million people, so I didn't realize it was as large as it is in terms of um, the list of world cities. And I didn't necessarily know a lot about it. So most of my takeaways were from things that were sort of um, tabula rasa, um, not having preconceptions. So I didn't know 
about the Asian side and the European side. I knew some of the history because of the Ottoman Empire, but I didn't know what the city was like today. So a lot of the modernity and the skyscrapers and the skyline being so generally dominated by either skyscrapers or the spires of mosques, I couldn't have imagined that because I didn't look any pictures online before I went. Now it's it's a it's it's a sprawling city uh, uh, with tens of millions of people. It's a mega city. Does it does it have that feel to it? Is there anything that uh, it it kind of relates to in terms of that scale that you've been to before? No, I mean I wouldn't have necessarily guessed. I could tell when I was there that it was probably in the low tens of millions. But I probably wouldn't have guessed sixteen from being there because. In the parts that I was fortunate enough to visit, there's never like a sense of the sprawl of maybe in L.A. or the motoring size of maybe in Atlanta. And there aren't sections that replicate like a Times Square where there's a ton of people in the same section at the same time. There are smallish uh, central sections. So because of that, um, maybe the feel more analogous to, I don't know, maybe like a Mexico city. Um, I haven't been into many cities that have more than 12 or 14 or 15 million people. Mm -hmm. So no, it was more like a collection of neighborhoods and a collection of communities. Uh, And that was just on the European side. Now the Asian side is a whole different conversation. Istanbul straddles Europe and Asia across the Bosphorus Straits, so we asked Bajan to elaborate on how those different cultural influences are reflected within their respective side of the city. So when you're close to the Bosphorus, you can see homes on the other side. And what you uh, learn while you're there is that the Asian side is more gentrifying now because the apartments and homes cost less. The European side is already developed, and that's where the skyscrapers and the banks and the commerce is. There isn't that on the other side. So one side gives you a sense of maybe being like, this is just an analogy, American analogy, Boston, and then going over to Charles River to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Because it's not that it's not up and coming, and it's not that the rents aren't getting higher, but it's still accessible and affordable to some people that um, now that it's coming on with the developers, but it isn't what the European side is in terms of the um, skyscrapers and the company headquarters and things like that. Even the skyline is is much more subdued on on the other side. It's just trees and buildings. But even with those two communities, the European side and the Asian side, are there still earlier cultural influences throughout both uh, parts of Istanbul? Certainly. I mean, on the European side is the the Hagia Sophia and the Mosque of Suleiman the Magnificent. And you can see fortresses that date back to the 15th and 16th century. You can see buildings that are high schools now, but they used to be military schools and military academies. Um, castles. Uh, there's a castle in particular that you can see when you're cruising the Bosphorus that was built in the 16th century to deter Russian invasion, which never happened. All those are pretty much technically right in the heart of Istanbul, and they're on the European side, whereas the Asian side is more Communities that have their own personality, you know, they're more like maybe a Georgetown or a Cambridge, and it isn't as 
they're, they're kind of eclectic. Some of them even funky and have boutiques, boutiques and galleries and cafes, but they still have silks. They still have herbs. They still have teas. They still have candies, but it isn't, um, it isn't like being in Manhattan. It would be more like when Brooklyn started to come back in the early nineties. You visited during Ramadan. What was the vibe there like in uh, Istanbul? Well, the differences are not that I've been any other time, but some of the differences that were pointed out to me that from people that are Turkish um, born is that a lot of times when you're out at an establishment, no one eats until eight fifteen. So they've been hungry all day and they've been thirsty. And it's and depending on who the person is, it might inform like their mood during that day, especially when you know they've been well into the month. The other thing that it does in some communities, some neighborhoods, and even some metropolitan areas is that some people turn all their lights on at 8.15 when it's time to eat. Some people, um, you know, there's the, uh, this, this, this sort of different ways that people commemorate it, but it's like having a celebration every night. So for some people, it's like having a feast every night. So it would be like having 30 Christmases. For some people, it's turning the lights on. For some people, it's now we know it's time to eat because of the call to prayer. So it was a little different in the sense that if you were at a dining establishment, some of the people who were your hosts or fellow guests, even after you were seated, you might be seated at, say, 725, but no one really ate till 815. We asked Bijan about the impact and lasting impression Istanbul had on him. Well, I think the views... Because from a lot of points in the city, because it's so hilly, you can see all these spires of mosques and skyscrapers at the same time and the mountains in the distance. And usually you can see all these things simultaneously. So it's just kind of breathtaking that whether you're in your room or whether you're out driving or whether you're out on the water, there's centuries and centuries of histories from some of the mosques, um, you know, the, the early, early churches there were the first Christian churches ever established. So you see ruins of those, and you see um, still standing Roman aqueducts. So there's a lot of different um, layers of history going on at the same time. It kind of, the analogy reminded me of the baklava, because we went to a baklava factory where huh. uh, 40 layers of baklava is about as thin as a sheet of paper. So the layers of the culture that are all there uh, at the same time kind of hit me like uh, being, you know, the layers of the baklava in, in one sense, or the layers even of a Turkish bath when you have a hammam and there's water, then there's warm water, then there's more water, then there's massage, and there's cold water, then there's massage. That's kind of that's kind of a good metaphor for Istanbul. To learn more about Istanbul, visit the link we have on this show page at worldfootprints.com.
is about new discoveries and appreciation for our collective history. And I think we've done a lot of traveling today. To me, Anna's story reflects the imperative of the preservation of cultural heritage. And Bijan's story shows the power of cultural integration. And what's so nice about both of these strains is that, from our experience, we spent some time with First Nations people in Canada, and Istanbul was one of these places that's so rich, and to see the impact of people around the world on places and how those people help define these places really shows you the importance of culture and the imprimatur that people make on those places. And I think the preservation of cultures around the world is very important because, frankly, it's a collective cultural history that's being shared for all of us as well. When you're educated, you become an advocate. And that's what travel is all about, too. Travel is also about discovery, and discovering something new is very transformative. And as Marcel Prost said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Thank you for traveling with us today. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to connecting you to the world, one story at a time, on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.